Hi, this is Alessandra, and you're listening to Where We're Here. the praisers! Are you ready? People of every nation, every color and creed, from ocean to ocean, let's join together as one great church with one great praise to our great and mighty God. Falava, tá se prostituindo? Se prostitua? Tá fumando? Fume? Tá cheirando? Cheire? Sabe o que Deus está mandando dizer? Tem coisas que eu não vou acertar contigo agora. Eu vou acertar no final. I was the radical kind where you preach on the street corners. Then my family and I were to move to the mission field in South America in December. However, my doubts about... I'm demanding that we hold responsible. Every white missionary, every black pastor who has gone from America to Africa and lied to the people. Ou vai se acertar comigo no final? No começo eu sou o teu advogado, no final eu sou o teu juiz. No começo eu sou o teu perdão, no final eu sou a tua sentença. No começo eu sou o teu céu, no final eu te lançarei no inferno. Ou se acerta comigo agora, ou Our cocoa, our timber, our gold, 
our diamonds, our platinum, our whatever. Everything you are is us. It's us. Hi, this is Bree from the Black Secular Collective, and you're listening to the Where We're Headed podcast. Hey there. So if you're one of our regular listeners and you're noticing that we haven't had as frequent a podcast as we did last season, I've been through a lot in the last year with health challenges in my family and being a caretaker and um, and also being in school. And so there are quite a lot of changes that have really made podcasting a little harder than it was even last year this time. And I'm telling you this because it's kind of relevant to where we're going to start off in today's show. I've spent months in hospitals dealing with doctors, specialists, and all kinds of people advocating for the closest of loved ones. And with that, I've had a lot of conversations with healthcare professionals that border on offensive religious speech. The casual and typical reflex of praising God and presuming people to be Christian and preaching to people over the bedside and telling people to be thankful for awfully difficult health conditions and challenges has just been in overdrive. And it's weird because it really forced me to make some choices about how I advocate for my loved ones and how best to do that when those people are the ones caring for them. Let me tell you, if I didn't already know, that kind of presumption is incredibly offensive and coercive and just outright unfair to level at people in the healthcare system when they're at their most vulnerable and when they are depending on you, the healthcare person, to look after the family's loved ones when the family can't be in the room. And that, my friends, is religious privilege. So for part one today on where we're headed, here's a short story. So recently I had to deal with the healthcare transportation company for an early morning doctor's appointment. And I ended up having a conversation with a nice lady on the way back from that appointment. It was friendly, at least it started out that way, but it kind of turned a little awkward. Are you a Hebrew Israelite? No, I said, but I then realized that I was wearing this kufi that I love that has gold embroidery all around it. And sometimes people mistake me for a black Muslim, but in this case, a Hebrew Israelite. Why do you ask? I admittedly played coy and wanted to signal that it was okay to ask me more. Nah, I just thought you might be. Do you know anything about the Hebrew Israelites? I asked a young black woman of no more than 25 or 26 years old. Not really. Do you want me to tell you? I asked politely, but also for permission because I wanted to know how much I might potentially offend her. Sure. Here goes, I thought to myself. 
So I opened with what I thought would be kind of a lukewarm general comment on them, the Hebrew Israelites, as I've seen it, but also to try and give some clues as to other attributes of the sect. They have a lot of passion and are quite outspoken, I said equivocally, but they actually conflate a lot of issues. She looked curious, but a bit confused, so I went on. It's my experience that they tend to know just enough about an issue or topic to, to either confuse themselves or whoever's listening. They mix and match a lot of topics and conclusions in a way that is appealing but often historically confused or just wrong. And they're highly patriarchal. Side note, black Hebrew Israelites believe that they are the true Israelites and that the 12 tribes of Israel are black people of color in actuality. Its movement is divided into organizations or sects that operate semi-independently across the U.S. And they kind of believe that they are the true Israelites and that no one else on. is actually really Jewish. Come on. Come on. But not all black Hebrew Israelite organizations are anti-Semitic or extremists, or not all black Jews are Hebrew Israelites. There are distinctions. I tried to give the Cliff Notes version of this very important black religious sect if for no other reason than it's just really complicated to talk about. I've had my own encounters with black Hebrew Israelites and black Jewish people, and sometimes it gets a little confusing telling them apart. But during the spiel, she politely interrupted me to tell me and admit that, <laughs> Sorry, you're using a lot of words I don't understand yet. Well, I mean bodily autonomy just involves others the way they see and objectify you as a fully functional thinking human being with a sense of priorities, reason, good faith, compromise, and freedom to be. She nodded in agreement. I gave some real world examples of unfair challenges and considerations women have to face because of patriarchy and even black patriarchal views especially black patriarchal views. I talked about Nick Cannon and his loose mouth in recent years and his cozying up to black Hebrew Israelite talking points like Kanye West and Kyrie Irving and other outspoken black males like Umar Johnson and Charlemagne the God, Dave Chappelle, and all those types of folks whose views and rhetoric curiously align with most of what I've heard over the years from black Hebrew Israelites. Since I had her attention as we rode in the back of the transport vehicle, and since she asked, I felt like I had leave to keep going. So I brought up the identity issues with LGBT people, a group of folks that Black Hebrews have notoriously opposed, explaining to her that the mere existence of a Black queer person evokes a bitterness and hatred that is antithetical to Black power, individuality, 
and liberation. That it's abusive and patriarchal to tell black queer people that queerness isn't the product of their own mind, insights, experiences, joys, or revelations, but a product of white control. That black LGBTQ people have traditionally been scapegoated and marginalized in black empowerment spaces from leaders and figureheads that delegitimize and objectify them. And that no real liberation, quote unquote, can actually be achieved through this kind of demonization. Because being pro-black should mean being anti-abuse of other black people. And that dropping one institution full of systematic abuse and falsehoods to adopt another is not really the flex they think it is. And it's not pro-black. I went on. And she nodded in agreement and curiosity, almost as if I was the first person that ever shared these things with her. And when I finished speaking, she basically admitted that. Our conversation was good, and I, I tried my best to articulate these things that I'd basically seen from Black Hebrews themselves, not to mention the Holocaust denialism. And I tried to just leave a little room for her to explore more on her own, and possibly learn something perhaps I didn't even mention. I also mentioned that, you know, African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans and Latinos, we're descended predominantly from the West parts of Africa, the Western Sub-Saharan Africa. So we're talking about Yoruba, Igbo, Congo, Sierra Leone, and so forth. And a lot of the Black Hebrews claims just don't really genetically or scientifically check out. And that's when she said it. She interrupted me to make this point. Well, you know, I see things through a spiritual lens. I hear what you're saying, but I believe that black people are the strongest, most human people on the planet. We're the only people that have 100% human DNA, and God knew that other people and other races would be threatened by that. Wide-eyed and stunned, I looked at her and said, what? Yeah, that's why God allowed us to go into slavery. Really? And you believe that? Uh, yeah, God knew we are a strong, formidable people. That's why he allowed us to go through the Middle Passage from Africa. That's why we survived. And with that statement, as we rode home from the doctor's office in the ambulatory transport, I let her close the conversation. Because at that point, I knew that I wouldn't have anything to add. I changed the subject so we could talk about food and, and some of the other things that I do like about the culture, I guess. But this is a sentiment that I've definitely heard before throughout my lifetime in different iterations. The idea that God knew that the slaves would go through slavery in the Middle Passage, and that's why he did it. This is a theme that's been really popular among a lot of black people and not just Christians still to this day, if you get them talking long enough. I guess I was just surprised at how young she was. So with her, God is so good that he caused the slave trade comment. I was looking out the window and waiting for us to pull up in front of the house. But for the meantime, we talked about some food and uh, that was a cool segue. Surely my appeal wasn't going to change any minds that day, but it does highlight something that's important in this study of religious beliefs and politics and culture, which is what's going on out there? What do people really believe and what are they being taught out there in the world? So today we're going out into the world to listen, to learn, and to talk with even one of our own members of the BSCDC group, Dr. Adria, to talk about the challenges of liberation and resistance with religion on the global scale. On today's show of our abroad series, 
the mission field. I'm Rogier, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. I grew up with a Krusian father who was many things, but who was definitely smart and also very confrontational when he wanted to be in an intellectual way. He was, for his time, very worldly and enterprising. He was a black man of his day, a Renaissance man. And he left a small Caribbean island in the 60s for school in Puerto Rico and studying philosophy and religion first. Spent some time as a local musician, playing kelbe and jazz music and serving in Vietnam, getting shot. He was a captain, went back to school and got his PhD, just did a lot of different things. But he was also, in many ways, just a regular West Indian man, and he could easily get vexed, especially on a Saturday morning when an unexpected, let's say, uninvited knock on the door turned out to be not just a friend or neighbor or bill collector, but a Jehovah's Witness. As a kid, I always had a sense for when the energy in the house was off. Even if I was just by myself in my room doing nothing or playing, the murmuring of conversation at the door, sometimes rising in pitch and tone, escalating to what might have even been a confrontation that moved me or my sister to peek out from the stairs, would change the mood of an otherwise fun Saturday morning where we were just watching cartoons and laying around. And so in our house, whenever we had that kind of interruption from a Jehovah's Witness, it seemed to definitely create a little bit of a hostile environment, shall we say. You see, my father had questions, lots of them. And Jehovah's Witnesses, it seemed, were not expecting an actual dialogue or scrutiny to the beliefs or claims that they were bringing to the front door, the prophecies, the healings, the answers to every question of life and all that. When it came to religion, my father didn't come for play play. He'd studied and almost gone to seminary himself. He, he loved philosophy and he'd studied religion. And he had a sense of who was hiding the ball. What's to make of the predictions in 1914? Why was that date announcing Abraham and Isaac's and Jacob's return recalibrated to 1925? What happened to the original prophecies of the group from the Jehovah's Witnesses that, that predated them, the, the Millerites? And how could you be so certain that this new date is right, given that the previous predictions failed? How do you even know any of this? What gives you the right to approach people and families unsolicited to tell them the good news if you, the foot soldiers, can't even or don't know the answer or the history to the questions that you're trying to answer? Oh, so you just based your entire evangelical mission on the hope that I wouldn't know these things or be too dumb or scared to ask you follow-up questions? Nah. This ain't what you want. Your being on my doorstep isn't the flex you think it is, what my father would probably say. Or maybe in his accent, look, for I ought to come to my house with all my children talking about Jesus and Jehovah. This is not the flex you think it is. The way our culture is set up, dissent and scrutiny is just not written into the playbook of moments like this. And you almost feel sorry for the dutiful, faithful servants who go out into the field and who've been sent on the highways and byways to tell people and propagate the faith that they don't necessarily understand themselves because the elders don't tell them necessarily. You see, what I see 
And what my father saw at that time was that there's an arrogance that can only come with the soft spoken voice and ingratiating tone of religious certitude. An arrogance and incuriosity that teaches people to adopt Jesus-y language and talk about heaven and presume fantastic realities based on the most flimsiest of evidence and fraudulent of claims. And too often that makes the act of questioning synonymous with evil or egat atheism. It's a culture that celebrates being a God-bothering, Bible-thumping, proselytizing, Christian evangelical, or whatever type of evangelical, who yells in the streets or on the subways or in Congress and canvassing neighborhoods to condescend to all who don't or who won't subscribe to this free gift offering. I saw a meme not long ago, probably written by somebody religious, that said, want to know how to find an atheist? They'll tell you. <laughs> And that was supposed to be the joke. As if. Because, see, it's really us. We tell you, right? It's us atheists who wear our necklaces and our atheist earrings and build gigantic atheist monuments and congregate and yell and tell people outside in the public how much we love atheism and going to different countries to tell people that they should also be atheists, too. It's us, the atheists, routinely waking up on Saturday mornings to post up on street corners in front of hospitals and train stations or venture into neighborhoods and tell people and their families of the perils of hell and not being in the number or hijacking an entire political movement to install fascist, bigoted autocrats, to inculcate an entire electorate with a 250-year-old wet dream of racial subjugation, conversion, and ethnic cleansing while robbing the poor and less well-off to do it. Yeah, it's us atheists who do that. So it was moments like this with my father and the JWs and memes like that one about us atheists that came to mind a few years ago as I read about John Allen Chow one late November weekend in 2018. Chow was the evangelical Christian missionary who showed up on the doorstep or pristine beach of an ancient tribe of hunter-gatherers who have lived undisturbed on an island in the Indian Ocean for thousands of years. Chow was so obsessed with bringing Christ Almighty to the heathens on North Sentinel Island that he snuck up on that island under the cover of darkness. And he had to sneak onto that island because it's illegal for anyone who isn't a member of that tribe to set foot on it. The Indian Navy patrols the waters around that island to prevent anyone from actually getting there, and it's illegal for outsiders to step foot on the island because the tribe has no natural immunity to the diseases of the modern world. So an outsider could introduce a pathogen that could wipe this entire population out. Also, the tribe is known for being violently hostile to outsiders and others who've landed on the island, mostly by accident, and have been murdered. Chow made it onto the island twice. He cut his first visit short after a member of the tribe shot an arrow at him, piercing the Bible he was holding in his hand. A reasonable person might have chalked that up to chance or bad luck, but Chow, an unreasonable person, chalked that up to mean that God would protect him. You know, the same way that those Bibles and hymnals sitting in pews are still there after the tornado completely decimates the church somewhere in Kansas or Arkansas. And the people come out and say, you know, God protected our church and we can tell because we still have Bibles. Never mind the fact that 
everybody in the town has been killed and maybe even the pastor or someone of the church is dead or sitting up in ICU somewhere. But I digress. So Chow thought that God would protect him and that's why the arrow missed his heart and just pierced the Bible. This is clearly an unlikely and untrue reading, but if you're the kind of person that needs to see God's hand in everything, perhaps that arrow through the Bible was God giving Chow one last chance to get his unwelcome ass off that island quickly. But Chow went back, and on his second visit, the islanders did exactly what everyone warned him that they would do. They killed him. And quickly, American evangelical groups started calling on Indian authorities and going to the press, saying that they should retrieve Chow's body and bring his murderers to justice. Yeah, no. Chow's presence on that island itself was attempted murder. Not just of the culture, but a threat to the lives of every member of that tribe. So his murder was arguably an act of self-defense. The tribe, what's the phrase again? the one beloved by right-wing religious nuts everywhere and the black people who love them, the tribe stood its ground. Now say what you like about Chow, an idiot, self-centered, God-bothering narcissist, but there is some biblical justification for what he was trying to do. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But there's no biblical justification, however, for our government secretly separating and shipping asylum-seeking migrants and children around the country without any tracking, no matter what Jeff Sessions says, or tear-gassing peaceful protesters in the street with the upside-down Bible, or demanding that 13-year-olds have the children of their rapists and submit menstruation cycles to authorities hats off to the eternally childlike beer drinking rapey himself judge kavanaugh one of bethesda's finest you see the same evangelical groups that are basically demanding justice for chow for essentially recruiting something that they're constantly accusing the gays of doing are noticeably silent on the abuse of refugees and separation of children and immigrants at the southern border among any number of other marginalized groups. You know, the least of them? Forget what Matthew 25 verse 42 said, for I was a foreigner and you took me in. By the way, the punishment for not taking that foreigner in from Jesus's mouth itself. Let me look at my notes in the Bible real quick. It is, oh, there we go. Eternal punishment and hellfire. Now, I'm not the first person to point out that an evangelical somewhere somehow has said something gratuitously hypocritical. And well, don't we all know that it's common at this point? Remember that thing they used to say about every child deserves a mother and a father? So atheism aside, if they can't be bothered to at least pretend to believe that the things that their so-called savior said are binding, if they refuse to do what Jesus told them to do, why do we, why do I, why do we have to pretend to believe in their quote, sincerely held beliefs. I'm not really sure if they ever recovered John Allen Chow's body from North Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean, but any evangelical missionary or proselytizing religious person, I think would be well advised to follow some very good, simple advice. Don't tell us what you believe, show us what you believe. Or better yet, just keep it to yourself. Coming up on part three, we're gonna interview Adria Armbrister. We'll talk about her work in this field specifically, personally, professionally, and historically speaking. Next on Where We're Headed. 
guess what? We've got mail. Or should I say, Where We're Headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback. Give us a compliment or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at wwhpodcasting. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com or twitter.com wwhpodcasting. Hey, this is Monica Burns, director of Black Atheists and Agnostics of Louisville and co-host of Blast Me in the Bluegrass. And you're listening to the Where We're Headed podcast. emigrated from Kenya to the United States. New country, new people, new language. But the one thing that remained was the presence of my savior, Jesus Christ. This didn't surprise me. I grew up knowing my God was everywhere, that he saw everything. I believed him to be a benevolent being whose image I was created in, even as I looked up at his portrait that was hanging in my grandmother's home, a frame full of blonde hair, pink and pale skin, eyes, a light blue piercing enough to draw blood, an image so holy, but one that did not allow me to see myself in my creator. But as a child, it didn't matter. I believed in the word of God. I read it like a love letter that he wrote me. I saw the preacher as the postman speaking deliverance each service until one day in Sunday school, we were wrapping English Bibles for poor kids in Botswana and I wondered, in what language did God listen? Did he hear my prayers clearly in Swahili? Did he hear me better now that my amens were sent up in a foreign man's tongue? A foreign man whose face looked more like his blue-eyed son I'd seen growing up. I thought maybe we sent English Bibles because his ears, they tasted the sweet sound of prayer better when spoken in this tongue. I know, looking back, it sounds like a silly moment to start questioning your faith, but that day I learned that once the seed of doubt is planted, its roots will always thirst. So I began to read about God. Each page was like a raindrop of history. I lost my religion in floods of understanding, but I grew closer to divinity, and eventually branches on that tree of doubt spread so wide that they blocked out even his divine light. It was around the same time that I realized that the poor kids I'd sent Bibles to, they were poor partly because of how that Bible had been used. See, when the missionaries came to Africa, Christianity swept our lands like a biblical plague. Our firstborns were smothered under the cover of night. Our waters, they flowed red and full, swollen like the bodies of stolen daughters. We were left in the darkness of colonization for eight decades. We became a continent of Job's, promised salvation but seeing suffering tenfold from those who came claiming grace but belting gospels of genocide, from those who beat tradition from elder tongues and called it tithe, from those who called losing our culture a tax for finding salvation in Christ. And ain't it funny? How they used their God to justify the taking of what ours had blessed us with for centuries. How they, how they claimed to introduce God to our lands when our lands birthed even their humanity. See, Jomo Kenyatta once said, when the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. And when we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bibles. 
Do you see how swiftly they pull wool from the lamp of God over our eyes? The greatest lie colonialism ever told was that it brought God to Africa. Yes, they brought their Bibles, but they did not bring God to our lands. Yes, they brought their churches, but they did not bring God to our lands. Yes, they brought their guns, but they did not bring God to our lands. What they brought was an image made to justify the breaking of our bodies like communion bread, a false idol that to this day I still see hanging so many Kenyan homes, a frame full of blonde hair, pink and pale skin, eyes, a light blue piercing enough to draw blood, to have already drawn blood. Welcome back to where we're headed. This time we're going to start right where we left off at the end of part two and introduce our feature interview with Adria Armbrister. because my family is from Jamaica, my mother's from Jamaica, and my father was from the Bahamas. Um, and in Jamaica and the Bahamas, they were from a very traditional religious background. My mother was Church of God, and my father was Episcopalian, Anglican, one of those things. He was like an altar boy and whatever. Um, and on coming to the States, they kind of, changed their religious orientation. I didn't really grow up with my father, um, but he was very much involved in Seventh-day Adventism, which although, of course, it's it's an American religion, is very uh, Jamaicanized, even though he's not Jamaican. And so he was really, um, he played the piano, was like a music uh, minister in Seventh-day, Jamaican Seventh-day Adventist churches here in Brooklyn. And my mother kind of went the other direction, right? She was very um, committed kind of to social, I don't want to call it climbing, social kind of integration with white people, right? Like that's kind of where you need to be. Not literally, right? <laughs> she was never like a face bleacher, <laughs> but um, more, you know, um, socioeconomically. So she switched from going to, you know, Church of God churches in the Bronx to when we lived in Westchester, going to white churches. Um, I think the first church I remember um, going to was a Baptist church. One of those, every there's always a first Baptist church. I don't know how many firsts there can be, but I went to a first Baptist church and I was kind of left there by myself to go to to Sunday school and then she would come later. And there's a whole, uh, you know, story around that because I think that was some of my first kind of introductions to racism um, through those children. But later on, we moved more south. I'm from New York. We moved kind of souther uh, in the state. So I, I was born in the city. We moved up to Westchester, but high up. And then we moved kind of down um, closer south. And with that move, we were recommended um, to go to the Christian and missionary Alliance Church, which is, um, it's considered like a multicultural church. The woman who recommended it was kind of defending me from the little racist kids in, in, uh, in um, Sunday school. Um, and so I think that's why she recommended this church. Um, and we started growing up, we started going to this Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. And their focus really is on, you know, missions. They have kind of this, uh, I don't know if I can remember all of the elements, but they have kind of like this saying about, you know, going out and, and bringing people in. I think it started with a very, it was, it's a New York City started religion or, or offshoot, right, of Christianity. Um, and so the focus was really on immigrants in the 18, late 18, early 1900s, and then um, moved to like missions in general. 
And so, you know, not only did like for, for collection plate, we not only had building fund, we also had missions, you know, that you collected money for. And it was very important um, within the church. And of course they came to visit, right? If we sent, if we, um, you know, we had specific missionaries who come visit the church. Um, this church, like I said, our church was multicultural. The wider church was not as multicultural. So our church was a lot of Caribbean people, both Hispanic and non-Hispanic, Black and not Black, um, Brazilians, older whites who were mostly like of German extraction who just, you know, were older and they didn't leave the church when we came in, um, uh, et cetera. So it was an interest. It was always an interesting spin on things because maybe we had a vision of what missions would be as kind of a multicultural church, but the larger church was very white, um, and the images were definitely of you know a white missionary with some black or brown people um, and, and kind of fixing them up. Um, and so I have you know several anecdotes about how missionaries would describe their work. And maybe we can go into that later. But I do credit my mother's decision to go into white churches um, and this focus on missions as really waking me up very early to the fact that maybe this Christianity thing was not real, right? Um, the racism was just so blatant that it made it very easy for me to start questioning pretty early on. Yeah. I just want to jump in and ask um, what that was for you. What was one of those things that, that, that sort of pinged as this is racist. And also maybe if you want to tell one of those stories um, and I don't want to make you go too far into things, especially if you don't want to, but but that and or whatever this this moment was. Um, yes, I think the first that I remember, I feel like for some of the missionaries, they, the, the alliance prides itself on saying that 80 percent of their missionaries are in kind of a, a square of like basically sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Southeast Asia. And so that's where we get a lot of people from. There are missionaries in other places, um, but that was like the majority, you know, people were coming from Burkina Faso or they're coming from uh, Indonesia or they were coming from, you know, to talk to us about what they'd done. Um, and I think one of the first times that I remember, it must have been maybe 10 or 11, a missionary came, I think it was from Irian Jaya, uh, Indonesia, because they were like obsessed with Irian Jaya, um, Indonesia. And um, had slides, you know, since the 80s. So it was those little square, you know, slides you stick in and you advance through them. And I remember in my brain, and I, I wrote a I wrote a little thing about this uh on LinkedIn also. But I remember looking at those slides and thinking, like on the first slide, oh, that you know, they look they're chilling. You know, they were you know, well-fed people. They didn't have a lot of clothes on, but it's probably hot. Um and so you know they were looking were looking kind of good, you know, but um, supposedly these, you know, this was the state that they were in. There was always a witch doctor. All the stories had a witch doctor in them. Um, and that there was kind of always a battle between the missionary and the witch doctor, right? To show that the to show them that it was Jesus and not, you know, sorcery that could save them or whatever. And so, like as it was a man, as he proceeded kind of through these slides, I was like, they look different. You know what? Like, why are they looking different? And he was talking about, you know, they, they, the first person who accepted the, the Jesus was like a woman, you know, an older woman. She was able to bring other people to come to the church service that they were holding, like under a tree or wherever. 
And this is like a 20 year you know, saga, right? And in the end, of course, the photo was of people wearing like fourth hand Nike t-shirts with holes in them, some broken flip-flops, um, you know, those long like skirts or like a dress, but that has like a hole, like, you know, somewhere. And they look poor. But in the first picture, they did not look poor. Um, and it just, I mean, at, at you know, t- 11 years old, maybe I wasn't thinking about what missionaries are actually doing, right, when they're going um, and like making people poor. But I saw that and I thought, well, so that's so strange. Like, why do they look like that? Um, you know, it's, it's supposedly they were happy, you know, they found Jesus and <laughs> they built the church and they did all this. But that pattern happened over and over. A missionary would come and they would say, oh, we went there and the witch doctor and etc." They would look fine in the beginning. And then by the last, you know, slide, they would look poor. Um, and the conversation, of course, was be about poverty um, and how we need to be supporting and giving to them because, you know, they're, they don't have access to medicine or so they don't have access to this or that. Or they need to build a church or you know, later on, I'm able to understand that they were creating poverty, right? That's one of the things that they did um, as missionaries. But those things always used to unsettle me as a kid. Uh, once I got to a teenager, I would walk out, um, you know, of them when they got too, like, intense. Um, so that was one. I mean, they would always talk about how they loved the food, how they loved the people. The people were so nice and welcoming. Um, they would come dressed, like, in the, you know, traditional clothing of wherever they were. I have a picture here from the Alliance website that I'll show you. That was a very common picture um, that you would get. Is that a white person in the left side? This is the missionary. Yeah. Yeah. And And she's, it's a she, right? Yes. it's a woman. And she's teaching the, uh, the brown people civility, it seems. Right. But she's using, you know, she's wearing their clothes. So there was always like a cover or a guise of multiculturalism. But the multiculturalism was for you to become a white person, right? We are so open that we're going to let you become, you know, like us. But the stories were the opposite, right? The stories were, oh, the people were so nice. They were so welcoming. The food was so good. You know, they're coming dressed in the clothes of the people they went to. And the conclusion would often be like, we really learned more from them than, or they taught us more than we taught them, you know? And I'd be like, well, why did you go then? You know what I mean? Like, what what you doing there? (laughs) If they already know all the things, why why are you, right? And so, yeah, as I got older, it made me much more angry, right? They would just say, you know, crazy, crazy things about, you know, people's health practices, child rearing. Like, these are the things they were correcting. Right. Within within the population, their child rearing clothing right? they weren't wearing enough of it. Those were definitely um, signs for me that something was off with the whole missionary idea. What would you also say about just a sort of um, puritanical or Puritan sort of messaging embedded in that? I mean, could you comment a little bit on that as well? Is There's clearly that racial implication of, you know, the need to to whiten the need to uh, immerse themselves into other people's ways, but specifically other people who are non-brown, non-black. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But also, what could you say about the the sort of aspect, particularly from the woman's perspective? Um, because I imagine that part of the dress involves what is considered to be, you know, respectable. You know, like if you're a woman, you shouldn't be walking around with with no clothes or with your knees and your legs out and stuff like that. You need to be covered. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a there's a gender and sexual undertone um, or overtone, I, I think, as well that comes with that kind of missionary approach, right? Yeah, you could see it in the clothes, right? The way that people were dressed. So in always in that first picture, there would be women with their breasts uncovered. They were breastfeeding children, right? That's what you need to breast for. That's their job. Um, and you would see, you know, in the end, they'd have like an old bra on, um, you know, underneath like the Nike t-shirt that's that has a hole in it. You could also feel kind of the missionary's discomfort. A lot of times it was a husband and wife pair the husband would present but they had been there with the wife and then they would send the children usually off to like a boarding school or something right so they wouldn't have to live in the village and missionary kids were a whole nother ball of wax um but it was definitely about their discomfort with how people were dressed um especially in southeast asia i think in um in most of the african work they were working like in West Africa or wherever people were already, you know, people had like clothes on. Um, but definitely once you got to like Indonesia, that was where like there was a lot, a lot of discomfort, uh, even in the men. Right. Because some of the men would like have um, piercings uh, through their penises and things. And that was it was all good. That got to go like all that all that has to go. I need you to put on some pants. Um, and uh, it was just kind of expected. Right. It was that was part of becoming a Christian was wearing European style clothing with maybe like your traditional shirt or something um, that you had. But, yeah, I, I don't I think that the this church, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, was very stealthy with the puritanical part of it. Um, you know, there was definitely kind of gender roles uh, that were praised and reinforced, but it was always very passively done. They weren't kind of preaching fire and brimstone. They weren't preaching like women's, you know, wives submit to your husbands. They just showed it, right? It was like demonstrated. Um, And that's what you're supposed to be doing. We did have a few Black missionaries who came. And I always thought that that was an interesting piece because they were much more openly racist, right? Um, Because they could be. (laughs) I think, you know, the white people truly tried to emphasize Oh, you know, they so it's cooking was so good and blah, 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 you know. Um, and the black people were like, they were witches, they were following the devil, <laughs> and we went in <laughs> and we, you know, cast out demons. And da, 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 da. one guy I remember, I think he was urban though, I don't remember where he had been. I remember I can see his face, but I don't remember where he had been. And he was very much, you know, about like. The, the, the demonic practices that these people had before he came in. And so kind of being a person of color really gave you much more latitude to be open about what was really happening. We didn't have any other, so besides a few black missionaries, I don't remember any other person of color as a missionary. But isn't, isn't that how it can be so much <laughs> Like with the with, with us, you know, with us is I don't want nobody telling me nothing about the demons. And you know, if we we get real, real extra with it when mm-hmm. it's when it's our turn, you know, yeah. like I don't. What is that? <laughs> I don't, 
Well, I guess they feel they didn't have to That's be it. politically correct, right? Right. <laughs> so I, I I think to be honest, it just reminds me like I've heard I it, I feel like with missionary work, when it comes to the actual the going out, the mission folks, those are the white folks. They're doing it. And like you said, they're a lot more passive and a little more subtle about the messages that they're that they're importing. Mm-hmm. But when we receive it, we just take that, we take that shit, we just run. With it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so real. It's just so, you know, restrictive and and self-hating in, in many ways too, because we just believe that messaging almost more than the folks that taught it to us. Exactly. Yeah. You can, I mean, you see it now, right. Even, you know, being Jamaican, Jamaicans are like violently Christian, right. It's not even like, Oh, the love of God. No, 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 no. There's no love. (laughs) We're not talking about that. Right. It's fire, brimstone, fire for that. Um, Because that's where we take it. And I think it's because the violence with which we received it, you know what I mean? It's a kind of reflection of that, of that violence. And then they, and if also the, the immigration aspect adds to that because now you're in a new place. And so you're trying to preserve culture. You're trying to make sure that you don't lose your mooring, you know, from where you came from. Right. No, no, not in my case. No. So my mother is, is was very interested. I don't, I don't, I'm not in contact with her anymore. Was very so I say was, but she's not. She's I, still here. Um, is was very interested in not being too Jamaican. So she would like I don't know. She thought she had like not an accent. Like people would be like, "Oh, are you fr- are you from Jamaica?" She's like, "How did you know?" <laughs> so I think yeah, she was very interested in that. So I think that. Um, being in these type of churches also gave her that illusion um, of, you know, not doing that. We would go to a Jamaican church occasionally, you know, maybe for a funeral or something like that. But that's not where she wanted to be. She didn't want to preserve any of the the culture. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of times those polar opposites too, you know, you've got on one hand people who come who are really, really gung-ho about preserving culture. And then there are people who want to run up, as far away from it as they can yeah. and assimilate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Jesus cover me under the blood, under the blood, miss me under the blood. Jesus, you may cover me under the blood. In the morning when me wake up, and the blood that Jesus may take up. And when they feel like me, I go break up, put the blood on me face just like a makeup. In the morning when me wake up, and the blood that Jesus may take up. And when me feel like me heart break up, put the blood on me faces like a makeup. Under the blood, under the blood, Jesus cover me. Did you ever get approached to to join a mission, like and go? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was planning for college, I was very like into the the alliance has this program. It's called Bible quizzing. I know a lot of churches have Bible quizzing, but this is a little different. It was, it was almost like a sport. So you had to like jump off these little jump seats and it it was, it was something. Um, And uh, I was involved in that for maybe till I was like 15. And so during that time I was planning to go to like, I think I was going to, wanted to go to Messiah college or something. 
either Messiah or, yeah, I think that was a big one for um, Alliance. And so, yeah, that was kind of part of, you know, the work, like doing missions. I'm interested, I was, I, I work in international development and I always had that interest. So I thought, oh yes, I, you know, I could be a missionary. But because our church was like the colored church in the sea of white churches where we were, we often weren't included in a lot of the things that, that were happening. So I know they had like some mission trips. I don't remember us being invited to do that. Only the kids who went to Nyack College, which was the closest college for that church, you know, would ha- would like do those things. But we weren't included in a lot of, we weren't invited, we weren't included. When we showed up, they'd be like, <gasps> <laughs> um, um, they would have like fairs and things, you know, like for all the aligned churches in the region. And we would come in like a bunch of like black and even if not black, like Brazilian, white or whatever. And they would just be like, <laughs> what are you doing? What's that? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we were kind of like on an island by ourselves. There was a Brooklyn church, uh, but I don't know if we did a lot with them. But that was about the only color <laughs> that was available. Wow. That's that's amazing. So, yeah, I I didn't have my church denomination um, is Moravian. And you probably know Mm -hmm. this when I moving here to the States, a lot of people don't know anything about Moravian, but people in the islands know. And, you know, a lot of folks, either that or people who live in Pennsylvania know who Moravians Mm -hmm. are. Um, But there are a lot of they did a lot of missionary work in in the islands and well, in the Danish West Indies where I'm from and and in Jamaica and Antigua as well. So you'll see them a lot. Um, but I always I've always generally felt uncomfortable with the idea of missionary work, and I didn't always know why. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt like there was something very sinister about. Uh, sinister and condescending and and deceptive, I right. guess, about the practice. And while I do think that there are good people who who at least think that they're doing good things, and and yeah, on some level, you know, if you're you know if you're bringing food or water, you know, sure, that's a good mm-hmm. thing. But it's it's what comes with that. Right, right. Yeah, right. you know, it's it's never settled sat well with me. Did you hear about? John Allen Chow a couple of years ago. Oh, the guy who got shot by the yes. by the um, natives. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was like, oh, poor you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, leave people alone. They told you to leave them alone. What, what am I to tell you? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, and that and that kind of perseverance, right, is rewarded um, within the church. So he was going to go like by hook or by crook to tell them about Jesus. Who? How are you going to tell them? You don't even know what language I speak. But I think that's the other piece that really came through, right? And I should say that I really made the connection with also like what my discomfort was was with missionary work because I work in international development. And I think that the international development model, of course, is modeled on missionary work. And it's this idea that by just being there, like the old Peace Corps, right? By just being there as a white person, right? Or as a proxy for a white person, you are contributing, you know, that the Peace Corps can send an 18 year old with only a bachelor's degree in nothing to a community. And that is going to help the community. Well, what can the, what do you, what do you help them do? And so that kind of idea was tr- is transmitted straight through international development. 
that, you know, the tension between this white saviorism or white proxy saviorism and, you know, what you're actually doing in someone else's country is really fraught for me. I changed, you know, my whole trajectory uh, in development um, because of that tension, right? You know, from working in a development bank where with maybe with the central government, we were coming up with projects. The community had nothing to do with what the, the project was. You bring in consultants from somewhere else, you know, from, from not the community to implement a project that's supposed to benefit the community because we knew what was going to benefit the community, right? Same way that, you know, I'm a missionary. I come in. I know that you need Jesus. You don't know. But, you know, I'm going to let you know that I know that you don't know that we're going to know. Um, that, that was like the first piece. I think the second piece, you know, I was working also on issues of uh, development with identity. It was called for indigenous peoples um, and in, in Latin America and, um, you know, working with ministries that were trying to protect indigenous peoples who are either in non no, no contact. Right. Or very recent contact. They had had contact like, you know four centuries ago. And they were like, oh, hell no. And then they, you know, they ran. <laughs> they were like, y'all stay out here. We don't stay in here. Leave us alone. Um, but the biggest, biggest enemy of these ministries work are missionaries. Um, what is that? The International Bible Society or something that wants to go in and translate the Bible in every language. And to get these people to understand that you are going to kill these people, but it doesn't matter. Because as long as I tell them about Jesus and they accept it, if they die, they're going to heaven. So, you know, that's good. Um, I think those two things like really just put everything together for me in terms of kind of how my work could be really be impacting in the same way as if I were a missionary. If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, check out the Black Secular Collective online to see if there's a local group near you that you can join. That's the Black Secular Collective on Facebook or Twitter or blacksecularcollective.com. I wanted to ask you maybe just two more questions and I wanna just sort of switch a little gear. I wanted to ask you your, in a related way, your opinion of Mother Teresa, and um, just, just, I want just go. Um. Well, I'll say I was I went to Catholic school, so um, in addition to being in this white evangelical, you know, church based, I went to Catholic school for pretty much my whole life, from first grade until twelfth grade. So Mother Teresa was kind of part of, you know, the whole story of, you know, missions, right? It, it, was a, it was a Catholic version of, you know, how important missions are. But I think that my, you know, recent understanding of what Mother Teresa really was and her kind of, you know, psychopathic, narcissistic uh, obsession with suffering uh, and making other people suffer is really in line with like my understanding of how Christianity kind of sets you up for narcissistic abuse, how it is in itself kind of the, you know, the, the, the building blocks of, of narcissistic um, abuse, but just how, you know, the things that she said in terms of, you know, having, having people, not relieving people's suffering, right? Just giving them a place to suffer would have been fine, right? Because suffering is virtuous. 
So, I mean, I, my opinion of her, it falls into my opinion of how, you know, psychopathic narcissists do so well in churches because that dialogue is, it fits, you know, it goes and how the, Im- and how people's image is built up like, a, you know, oh, you're a missionary, you know, your, your image is kind of unshakable. It can't be stained. And, and, you know, how that really gives them the supply that they need to continue abusing people. You know, there was a podcast, I think, about the nuns themselves who worked with her um, and the abuse that they suffered, in addition to the actual, you know, population that those nuns contributed to abusing. So, yeah, I'm, you know, Mother Teresa, another narc. Yeah, but humble and the Lord's servant, right? Of course, you know? of course, of course. Yeah, <laughs> always projecting humility and contrition and care and empathy. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just ask you, because uh, I know that you are, technically you are Dr. Adria, right? Mm-hmm. And um, just for the record, um, I just wanted to ask, it doesn't even have to be related, but I just wanted to make sure that we credit you properly. Oh, um, hi. <laughs> My name is Adria Armbruster. I am currently working as a, how do I call this? Working in a government-run philanthropic organization that provides, or agency, that provides um, grants to community-based organizations looking to develop projects in in Latin America and the Caribbean, looking to develop projects uh, for their communities around a variety of topics, most of them income generation related. Uh, and human rights related. I have um, I have a bachelor's degree in uh, sociology and history from Columbia University, Columbia College, Columbia University. A master's degree in international relations and economics from Johns Hopkins University, and a PhD in socio medical sciences with a concentration in sociology from the Mailman School of Public Health uh, at Columbia University. Yeah, I, my focus regionally is Latin America and the Caribbean, and uh, I'm an atheist, and I'm here. <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Adria for telling her story and for showing us a little bit more about this landscape. I don't know about you, but I've always been uncomfortable since I was a child with the idea of evangelical missionaries going to Africa and different places around the world to, quote, spread the gospel. And just to wrap it up, the imposition of all of those preachments from those different organizations and sects to to people who are really underserved and under uh, resourced around the world has just always made me very skeeved out particularly when you start to appreciate the political implications of adopting these types of tenets. In the end, it doesn't really matter if it's Black Hebrew Israelites or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Pentecostals, John Allen Chows or Scott Lively's of the world, or the adoption agencies that work around the world kind of doing the same thing for kids who are victims of earthquakes and all kinds of maladies and so forth. Or the people that come and get them, like Justice Amy Coney Barrett, that have a similar ideology about taking care of kids, Black kids specifically. It's all just very misguided and weird, to be frank.
So today was a little long, but I hope you enjoyed it. We went over the hills and through the woods to produce this episode. Special thanks to my assistant producer, Dre, who participated in the earlier segment, who has been behind the scenes really helping out and who is on board to continue working on this project that we have here. I want to again apologize for the delays in the episodes, but we are working and I am trying to get as much done as possible with all the personal stuff going on. So just keep checking in. We still have a great season lined up and we will get these episodes out as soon as we can. Don't forget, you can support and contribute to this effort through Patreon at rogier.one, that's R-O-G-I-E-R-S-1 on patreon.com, or just follow us on Twitter at WWH Podcasting. That's twitter.com slash WWH Podcasting. See you next time. Where We're Headed is produced by the Phoebe Music Group, LLC, for the Black Secular Collective, with support from the American Humanist Association and listeners like you. To contribute to this project and help keep it going, visit phoebemusic.net to donate or check the show notes for more details.